Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And if you notice a newfound vigor to the program starting today, it's because Shannon Bond, the marvelous media correspondent at the FT, will be the full-time co-host along with me from here on out. Shannon, very exciting. I'm very excited, Cardiff, to babysit you. I, I should also, no kidding. <laughs> I should also say I'm out of here. So I'm basically dumping this on your lap. I'm going on sabbatical for the better part of a month. I'm going to Cuba. So thanks for taking over. Oh, yeah, of course. What, what, do, you, what do you have in store for us? I just think every week I'm going to have Amelia on and we're going to rag on you. You're just going to talk behind my back yep. again? Yep, yep. Okay. What's good about that, too, though, is that she also likes to just trash me to my face. So it kind yeah, of works. She's equal opportunity <laughs> right? criticism. Yeah. She is an equal opportunity <laughs> trash talker. It's great. Okay, awesome. So let's get on with the show. On the show today, comedian megastar John Stewart, longtime host of The Daily Show, has now found a new role at HBO. Uh, Shannon, you and I are going to talk about that. Uh, after that, George Soros has pulled his money out of Bill Gross's bond fund at Janus. Where does that leave him? And then finally, while on the road last week, Alpha Chat visited the MIT Age Lab to find out what kinds of technologies will make life in old age a bit more pleasant. Stick around, especially for Shannon to call me Grandpa Cardiff. It's going to be a really fun show. First up, new co-host Shannon Bond and I are going to talk about John Stewart. Shannon, we're both John Stewart fans, I think it's fair to say. Who isn't? Right? I know, right? So he's been kind of in this, he's been lost in the ether for a little while since he left The Daily Show where he was host for 16 or 17 years or something like that. Uh, he left just a few months ago. What's he up to now? So we got some really interesting news yesterday. He is going to HBO, which... Kind of makes sense when you think about it. His protege, John Oliver, is at HBO now doing a show that it's very much influenced by The Daily Show. Um, they also have Bill Maher on there. So, you know, sort of the idea of kind of the John Stewart brand of, you know, political cutting comedy isn't necessarily a new one for HBO. But what's interesting is he's not going there to do a traditional TV show. So this isn't going to be sort of a new version of The Daily Show. It's not going to be Daily The Daily Show 2. No. He is starting off. He's, it sounds like he's going to be doing several projects. The first one that they've announced is he's going to be making short-form video um, that's meant – it's going to show everywhere on all of HBO's platforms, but it's specifically for their digital platforms. So you might remember um, just about a year ago they announced – Time Warner, the parent company at HBO, which also owns CNN and a bunch of other television channels, they announced that they were going to, for the first time, allow you to subscribe to HBO without paying for a big pay TV package. So you don't have to be you know, a, a subscriber to Time Warner, Cable, or Comcast, or Dish. You can watch this stuff online you, if you want. Yeah, you can pay a monthly fee and watch this stuff online. And so as you know, since they've done that, they want to get more subscribers and they want to get subscribers who are – they're not necessarily trying to like get their cable subscribers to cancel their cable subscriptions and go over to HBO now. But they're trying to get new subscribers, people who wouldn't 
not necessarily have previously subscribed to HBO. Sorry, HBO Now is the is the way that you watch HBO content online, right? It's online, an app and it's a on your iPhone, on your Roku or your Apple TV, like in lots of different places, but right. no cable subscription, essentially. That's okay. like the key part of this. They want to get more subscribers. They want people to watch this. They want people to be excited about it. You know, at a time when there's a lot of competition, right? You have Netflix, you have Hulu, you have Amazon Prime, Instant Video, you have a bunch of places yeah, where you can watch Yeah, we spoke about this TV. a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Yeah, with Disney, right? The move right? to streaming. Right. So, so what's, what's becoming increasingly important is, you know, what are the shows you have that set you apart? Um, and so the latest, you know, they're adding is Jon Stewart, but he actually, it's, he comes – he's the most recent in a long line now of deals that they've struck to, to make stuff that really seems to be specifically aimed at this platform. Um, so they picked up Bill Simmons, the sports writer who founded Grantland. Famous sports writer yeah, at ESPN. Like probably Land, like right? the, you know, the best-known sports writer of his generation, um, has, a huge, has a huge digital following, big podcaster. HBO is giving him a show. This is going to be, it sounds like it's going to be kind of a mix, actually, of pop culture and sports, more along like the ground. Like documentary type things. And he'll do some other things too, some other right. digital things for them. They also signed a big deal with Sesame Street. So they are now the new home of new episodes of Sesame Street, which will show on HBO, but also are going to be online. And they signed a deal with Vice Media to produce a daily news show. So all of these things are sort of, you know, they're lining up a menu. So, you know, kind of whatever it, whatever type of shows you might be interested in, whether it's kids content, whether it's news, whether it's Jon Stewart, there's something for you there more compelling to spend, you know, fifteen ninety nine a month on a yeah. subscription. And there, it seems like, I guess there's two different ways you could talk about this. There's the TV story and what this means for the broader video context and everything. And then there's like the HBO specific story. So HBO, and I don't know how well our international listeners will be aware of this, but it's known for sort of rigorously pursuing quality and right. worrying about how many people actually watch its stuff later on. Right. So, I mean, they spend a lot of money. So think about a show like Game of Thrones, right? right. Huge production costs, like really high end, you know, and a lot of times like kind of movie quality to a lot of the things they're producing. Yeah. But I mean, even before then, The Wire, mm -hmm. The Sopranos, I think, or maybe it's two most famous shows. I mean, shows that it wasn't obvious beforehand that they would get these kinds of big cult followings because they were kind of, uh, I don't know, they were, they, were, they were very thoughtful, I guess, and that's not always the kind of thing that attracts a lot of viewers. Uh, but now it's like they're still obviously pursuing a kind of superstar approach where they're just trying to get the biggest and best names. I guess I wonder now, though, I mean, Jon Stewart, Bill Simmons, uh, unclear what they're going to do with them, Vice... I wonder if there's uh, if there's a risk to diluting the quality of their content, um, the average quality of their content, I should say, because they're essentially trying to just get as many things as they can to prepare themselves for this new digital future. Well, I think that's why, I mean, they're being really picky in who they're making these deals with. So kind of in each of these areas, it's like the premier brand within that area. So, you know, comedy... You know, John Stewart is – yes, he had been in The Daily Show for 16 years, but I don't think viewers were necessarily, like, ready to see him go. I mean, he's certainly at the top of his game still. Right. I mean, he's still – this is not sort of somebody kind of on the downslope of their career, yeah. right? Bill Simmons, you know, best one of the best-known names in sports with a huge, particularly online following. You know, kids programming, is there anything better than Sesame Street? I mean, so they're going for really – Top, top, top tier. I mean, you've seen other companies who have tried to invest really, in these sort of Really, it's only Vice that I wonder about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Vice has this like magical halo of millennials, right? Right. Which is that they, they have this reputation of they're the ones who figured out how to reach millennials. 
you know, what's, what's interesting, this, this news about Jon Stewart came on the same day that we got news that Vice itself is getting its own cable channel, um, which is not going to be news focused. It's going to be more lifestyle, entertainment, travel, kind of that sort of programming. And, you know, that's, it's an interesting move for them. Is, is, are they going to find the same audience, you know, on TV that they found online? That's yet to be seen. But, you know, as much as we like to talk about these, these shifting viewership patterns, which are definitely real, people still watch a lot of TV. A lot of young people still watch TV. So, you know, I think that that, for, from Vice's point of view, do a deal with HBO, get your own cable channel, right. you know, be on YouTube, be wherever people are who, who want to watch you. Yeah, I mean, from HBO's perspective, too, I think it's important to remember that people like John Stewart and Bill Simmons don't just have a magnetic pull for a big audience. They also tend to attract a lot of other talent. Right. Simmons, in particular, has a very loyal following of writers that he hired to Grantland and then obviously want to work with him again. Right. right? And, and he's now hired uh, several of them he's hired to work yeah, with already, him at HBO. Already, yeah, already. You know, yeah. Especially now that Grantland is shut down, I yeah. would guess that a few more of them would probably go join him. Uh, Stewart, you already mentioned that he's already spawned like a whole bunch of other careers, including John Oliver's. I mean, spawn is the wrong word. These people might have had wonderful careers in their own rights, but... He gave them a platform. Yeah, he gave them a platform, and he was sort of the common thread. Yep. So anyways, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, Let's really quickly talk about what this means for television, right? I mean, can anybody else replicate this kind of approach that HBO is using, uh, or are they sort of occupying a unique kind of niche within uh, this landscape? HBO was one of, if you remember, one of the early sort of companies to go from being a distribution platform. So they were for a long time, they were, you know, a cable channel that showed movies to investing in original content. Now that's something you're seeing happening again in the online space where, where companies like Netflix are, you know, it's not just about licensing movies and shows. It's about making their own shows. You've seen some of this CBS, uh, the, the big broadcaster is really interesting. They are probably considered among the most traditional of sort of the big U S broadcasters. Um, but they have so far among those broadcasters been the most aggressive in launching a, a digital platform. So they, around the same time that HBO announced HBO now, CBS announced they would be making their own platform where you could watch and pay six bucks a month, watch live TV, watch things on demand, which I think had people, a lot of, a lot of people scratching their heads because they aren't HBO. First of all, this is stuff that if you have an antenna, you can get over the air for free. They'd sell their stuff to a lot of other platforms. Like, why am I really going to pay $6 to, to watch CBS online? A couple days ago, uh, CBS announced that the newest uh, installment of Star Trek, they're going to have a new Star Trek TV series, and it's only going to be available on their online platform. On their earnings call this week, the CEO said that was just sort of the first of many planned original content investments. They want to build up that platform. They want to do the same thing for their platform for Showtime, which is an HBO competitor, um, where they're going to make original content there. So I think this certainly is a model for other companies to pursue. But it's true, you know, HBO is in a different position. First of all, it's already a subscription business, so it's a little easier to convince people that they should pay for the content. And they kind of they can command the sort of the clout to draw people who you know are as hope, high profile as as Bill Simmons. Yeah, there is, a, there is a prestige issue. Yeah, and they can pay too. for it too. Right. They can pay for it. So you know, I think it, this, this isn't something that everyone can do. And we've seen you know another company that's tried to do this is Yahoo. Remember Yahoo hired Katie Couric, the, right. the news anchor, to do a news show. They picked up Community, um, this NBC sitcom that never really did very well in the ratings, but had a really loyal audience. And they've had to write down the value of their content investments dramatically, and it just hasn't worked for them. So 
just put, buying the stuff and putting it online doesn't necessarily work. Okay. Uh, Shannon, uh, you're going to be around for the whole episode, but because of some logistical constraints here, I'm going to talk about Bill Gross with Mary Childs and Stephen Foley, but you're coming back after that to talk about how I'm too old for a 35-year-old man. That's absolutely right. true. Okay. All right. Bye. Have fun. See, see you in a bit. And up next, George Soros has pulled all of his money out of Bill Gross's bond fund at Janus. I'm joined in the studio by Stephen Foley, the FT's U.S. investment correspondent, and in her Alpha Chat debut, Mary Child, U.S. financial correspondent, previously at her employer not to be named. She was, I believe, the Bill Gross correspondent, right? That's that correct. was an actual position. Okay. It's my title. Stephen, uh, you wrote this piece yesterday. Uh, what do we know? We know that, uh, that George Soros, a year ago, gave one of the first and biggest and most important endorsements to Bill Gross as he was trying to get his new uh, unconstrained bond fund off the ground at Janus after the trauma of his exit from, from PIMCO. Uh, lots of marketing around that, uh, around that um, mandate, 500 million bucks, uh, and it's gone. Uh, we spotted in, uh, in filings at the end of September that that, uh, that money has been withdrawn, and uh, the reason is the performance. He's lost basically 2% of George Soros' money, and uh, Mr. Soros don't like that. All right, so no more vote of confidence. Uh, he said explicitly that he pulled his money out because it just wasn't performing, or is this what we think? No, we, we've, uh, we've, we've not had any official comment from either, either side here. This okay. is, uh, the, the performance, however, speaks for itself, and it's, uh, it's been a torrid, uh, a torrid few months for Mr. Gross. The right. unconstrained fund that he's got, supposed to, it's supposed to be an all-weather fund. It's supposed to make money. It's supposed to be, beat cash right. all times, uh, and he's not done that. Okay, so if I'm not mistaken, all right, there's a lot of excitement, Mary, when uh, Bill Gross first started raising money for his fund. I think the initial numbers were about $1.4 billion. Turned out that like half of that was his own money. Mm -hmm. So Soros now taking his money out means that outside money is now, what, a couple of hundred million? Is that right? Well, so there are a bunch of different ways to structure your investments. And Soros's uh, pile of money was ex outside of the actual 1.5, 1.4 billion it. allocated, you know, within the actual Janus fund. So it's, it's a separately managed account. So it doesn't actually count in those numbers. Got it. But it does look like what? What is our total right now? Well, we think it's it's less than a billion anyway. So less than a billion. So, um, okay. Yeah, the, the fund itself is one point four still. Okay. And uh, the question now is uh, is what the developments of the last uh, month or so will do to the confidence of the people who backed him a year ago of right? everybody else because it's not just the Soros uh, Soros money going right we've had a a little bit of news around uh, around, <laughs> around Bill Gross's attitude towards his former employer as well. He's gone and laid a uh, wrongful dismissal suit down against uh, against Pimco, and uh, you know, lawyers they take a bit of your time uh, and a bit of your attention. Yeah, but I mean, so the the focus of that lawsuit seems to be a kind of reckoning, at least for Bill Gross, to try to kind of slam his old employers at Pimco. Like he he really seems to still be pretty pissed off about how things went down there. What happens next, and can any of this go away anytime soon? <laughs> it looks like it's going to be kind of protracted. I mean, PIMCO has said the suit is without merit and has lawyered up. And, you know, I think that, that the next step, they're going to obviously try to negotiate. I think the uh, there may be an opportunity for a settlement, but um, I think probably PIMCO is not going to want to pay to make him go away. It's providing a very big distra distraction for everyone. I think within PIMCO, they're saying, you know, why is this still something we have to deal with? They're just fatigued. They want it to stop. And it's distracting for their investors as well. One of the number one reasons people cite it when they pulled money out was, 
you know, I think you guys are fine, but this is just so distracting. I'm tired of all the headlines. So this continues to kind of weather, um, to kind of beat at them and they're a little bit tired of it. So I think it's going to provide a big distraction and it keeps us in jobs. Anyway, that's, uh, that's for sure. I do think, I do think on a timing point of view, you know, PIMCO is, um, Pimco's uh, flows have kind of stabilized now, right? If this came six months ago, he could have done a lot more damage. Uh, there is this sense that he's out to throw some throw some firebombs over his shoulder at Pimco. Uh, the suggestion that he wants to uh, wants to see the place burn. We will uh, we will see whether that's uh, successful or not. But uh, my my impression is that a lot of the institutions that have wanted to give up on Pimco. Have, uh, have have done so, and a lot of others have actually been persuaded that the bench is deep, that the, the systems are in place, and you know this this lawsuit is going to be a smaller deal for Pimco relative to the size of their funds and their their management time right. and their infrastructure than it's going to be. We should for give Bill this Gross a bit of context. Janice. How big was the Pimco fund that Bill Gross was running when he was still there? He was running over two hundred and twenty billion bucks <laughs> at the, uh, at, right. the right. at the top. So right. less than less than one now is uh, is it's not the way he thought it was going to go, right? He really sure. did think he was going to get a lot of inflows. You and I sat sat in the FT studio, I think, a year ago, talking about why that might not yep. uh, why that might not be. Is there is there a sense of how much Janice will tolerate, right? Obviously, it sort of looked like a big coup for them when Bill Gross, legendary bond fund investor, came to them. Um, but now we've got this kind of ugliness, this lingering ugliness with PIMCO. We've got George Soros pulling his money out, uncertainty about what investors are going to do next. Um, I mean, what's, what's their stance on all this? Well, Dick Wall was asked a question about Bill Gross in the uh, the earnings call just a couple of weeks ago, and you could almost hear the teeth gritting. But but the answer was the same as it was a year ago. It was, what a privilege to be able to be working with Bill Gross, the legendary investor, the best bond investor of uh, of the last forty years. It's the same answer still. It's something that's going to be you know tough to to back down from at all. It's it's something that I think you do need to embrace and say, you know, everything is is jolly and we're doing great. Thanks so much for your interest. They did pair him with a co-PM recently. So they brought in another guy to help manage the fund. I don't imagine that Bill was delighted with that. And I don't imagine that the rest of the fixed income team there, there already was a very well-respected and well-regarded team within Janice doing fixed income for years. And having all this attention directed to Newport Beach is a little unsettling. And that was, you know, that was the initial reaction when Bill joined was, oh, gosh, what does this mean for the fellows who are already doing this job? Um, and they had this kind of distinct but separate and complementary argument. And increasingly, that looks a little bit fraught. Okay. I want to, sorry, you were going Well, ahead. I was going to say it is, it is at least contained to Newport Beach, right? He's in, his, uh, he's in a separate office away from the, the, the Denver headquarters of, uh, of Janus. So everything that, uh, that Bill Gross brings is gravy as far as they're, they're, they're concerned. And uh, Dick Wilde talked about the halo effect of, uh, of having Bill Gross on the, on the ticket. People who maybe didn't think twice about Janus before will now. But he ain't as prominent on the website as he was six or nine months ago, that's for sure. Sure. So I, I want to turn to something a little bit more subjective here, right? Because Bill Gross puts out these monthly outlooks. Okay. There is no, unfortunately, objective measure of how weird these things are. So we can't track if they've gotten weirder and weirder over time. I would guess the answer is yes, but he's always been a little bit eccentric. What do you guys think? Opposite. He has become uneccentric, deliberately uneccentric. Last two investment outlooks, his monthly outlooks, no whimsy, no dead cats, no dancing with his wife, no erectile dysfunction, nothing. It goes straight into the bond market. some discursive thoughts about public toilets and things like that. 
That's the have old bill. That's, been that's, excised. That's, that's the old Bill Gross. They've been <laughs> cut out, haven't they? They're they're a terribly boring read now. It is more tame these days, and you know, it, it will remain to be seen if next month is going to be boring or eccentric. I think that there is a lot to be said for, uh, and even Bill could have made this call himself maybe reining it in a little bit and not giving everybody the the crazy stuff at the beginning to delight in and, right. and focusing on kind of the brass tacks of investing because, you know, as his performance isn't really bolstering his credibility, he wants something to. Well, They're starting to edit it a bit. Yeah, you, remember the, uh, you remember the Morningstar conference where he turned up in the sunglasses and... Compared himself uh, and to Justin Bieber. Compared himself to Bieber, right? That was, that was a great speech about how to run a bond fund, how to make, uh, how to get the alpha in a bond fund. But no one paid any attention to that because for the first 15 minutes, he was Justin Bieber. Yeah. Uh, one final point about Bill's macroeconomic thoughts, right? So a few years ago, he made this call on treasury bonds. It turned out to be wrong, for which he still criticized, right? More recently, uh, he said two different things in the course of a few months that I can't quite reconcile. He told you, Mary, I think a few months ago that the Fed should get up off zero. More recently, he's advocating something like the reversal of what used to be known as Operation Twist. He's now advocating that the Fed specifically start trying to steepen the yield curve by buying the short end stuff, selling the long end stuff, right? How do you get up off zero on the short end stuff, which is the, what the Fed directly controls, okay, if you're also trying to depress it in order to steepen the yield curve? So some of the the difficulty reconciling that is because he is of two minds. Part of what he's arguing with the get off zero now is you never should have done this in the first place. So there's kind of a rhetorical uh, argument and then an actual argument. So when he's giving prescriptions for what we should do now, if he were in the Fed, he would do X, Y, Z. You have to kind of parse it for whether he means like, really, you should do this, or I wish that you had never done this in 2008, 2009. So there is kind of that conflict and dissonance between what he thinks and what he really Thanks. So I mean, getting off, getting substantially off zero is uh, is a long way is a long way off. He even recognizes that oper- Operation Switch, I think he calls it, isn't it? Um, about uh, about selling the, uh, the the long end. That's uh, even he recognizes there's about zero percent chance of that uh, of that happening. But uh, at least he's put it out there. Okay, Mary Childs, U.S. financial correspondent; Stephen Foley, U.S. investment correspondent. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and up next, Shannon, I know you've been looking forward to this for a little while, all right? Amy and I went to uh, the MIT AIDS lab in Boston last week, where we spoke to Joe Coughlin, who heads up that lab. I should note that this lab is a kind of research project that's housed at MIT, but it's funded by a mix of public and private sector uh, organizations. So the U.S. government, I think, does contribute to it, but so do you know companies in the transportation se- uh, sector and elsewhere. But essentially what they do is they try to come up with ideas and technologies that will make old age a little bit more pleasant. This seems super important. That seems super important to you, Cardiff, because I know you're pretty <laughs> terrified of aging. Is this as terrified of aging as, yeah, I guess. Are you just, you're, right? you're, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess. You know, what I think is you're preparing for your inevitable future. I mean, your personality is already there. You're right. grumpy and <laughs> grumpy Uncle Cardiff. That's but true. But now eventually your body will catch up to it. I'm, I am known as Grumpy Uncle Cardiff uh, around the office. But also, I mean, let, let's face the facts. And I asked Joe Coughlin about this. I mean, we work in a profession uh, that I do think is fundamentally ageist, right? Reporting. Um, yeah, reporting. I mean, you know, part of that might be sort of what it entails, but part of it just has to do with how it's always been, right? This isn't like a huge money-making industry, journalism, right? And, and so older, older up, editors get expensive and exactly. younger blood is always cheap. 
younger blood is always cheap and it's always in demand, right? Just not in demand enough to pay it a lot of money, right? So anyways, I, I, I do sort of wonder what happens to people like us as we get a little bit older, what options are going to be there. And in the context of a society that's always changing, right? And an economy that seems to change uh, very quickly. That's something we should obviously embrace. But at the same time, yeah, I think it does create some anxieties. So anyways, I really enjoyed this chat. Uh, so here it is. Joe, thanks for doing this. Great to be here. Okay, so I'm going to start by uh, admitting something, which is that part of the reason I wanted to talk to you was to like soothe my own anxieties about what's going to happen to me when I get older. All right? I hope you can do that. I hope that's not too much of a burden. Calm down, because aging is a good <laughs> thing, because the alternative is not nearly as pretty if you think about it. Uh, that, I suppose <laughs> that's true. Uh, I suppose that's true. Aging yeah. is better than not aging, but that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's pleasant, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to make it more pleasant. Okay. I work in what I think is clearly an ageist profession, journalism, right? Everybody's always talking about, Technology, well, let's get the, the yep. let's get the young new talent. And of course, what they mean by young and new is the cheap talent, right? Yep. And so I look at that and I worry, right? So I'm 35. I think the years during which I could, I could uh, unambiguously refer to myself as a young man are coming to an end, right? right. And so I worry about the next couple of decades and what's going to happen to me. So what do you tell people like me that will ease my anxiety that I am going to be just fine as I get older and older? Well, speaking as the guy who's in his mid-50s with a shiny <laughs> head uh, looking at 35, a couple of things I think will happen over time. First off, there's more of us. That is, right. there are more older adults. And I think that over time, um, the number will, shall we say, change the attitudes. Secondly, many industries actually need those older workers. Many of them have in their heads, not just the relationships with the clients, if you will, that keep businesses uh, working, but the technical knowledge that actually keeps the petrochemical industry alive. There's a shortage, believe it or not, of truck drivers, a shortage of petrochemical engineers, defense engineers, even in finance, where the average age of those professions are going into their 50s. So while there's this large surplus of millennials and maybe even younger Gen Xers and Gen Zs not too far behind to go into certain professions we're seeing other professions where, frankly, a lot of companies may want to retire those folks out because they're expensive, but need those senior folks because they have the institutional knowledge and the relationships they need to keep on going. I guess the other thing to think about is, is that very few of us want to stay in the same job we've been doing through three or four decades. So the new normal, I would argue, is education for a lifetime to be retreaded for a lifetime. So rather than thinking about, gee, you're going to be working for 30, 40 years, 30 or 40 years in your career, rather we ought to start thinking about, wow, if I'm going to be living a long time, am I going to have three or four, not jobs, three or four different careers? So the next person that may be in front of you for an interview may be a bright, shiny, new 60-year-old with some very nice shoes, but very new to your career choice. Right. Yeah. I guess the, the other thing that I'm hoping for and that, again, I have no idea whether or not it will happen is that because, as you said, there will be more old people in general, yep. we'll know each other best, if that makes sense. So all of those old people will also be consumers of products. They'll be buyers of oh. products. And so if just like, just like uh, a lot of people want to know right now how to best market to young people or to millennials or whatever, Gen Z, uh, later on when the bulk of the population is people you know, in their 50s and 60s, right. You're going to need other people in their 50s and 60s to know best what those people want to buy. And to a certain extent, yes. I mean, you're, you're going to need them to, to know what they, what they want, per se. 
Uh, think of this as a side note. By 2047, there will be more people over 65 than there will be people between zero and five. So, I mean, this is a global phenomenon that's happening in every economy of the world. But I guess the other thing that you touched on is is absolutely correct, which is the aging marketplace is not about building products and services for the old, and especially not just for the frail. Do we really think that tomorrow's old are going to be like their grandparents, but just more of them? They are more educated. The over 50 actually control 70% of the disposable income in the world. They would be the third largest economy. They have more education, more income, and here's the big difference of the next generation. It's not about a generation gap. It's about expectations gap. They expect to live longer. They expect to live better. So that's going to drive the demand for new products that are easier, experiences that are personalized, things that improve my performance. And listen to the beauty of those words. That's not just for the old. A 20-something or 30-something would be happy to buy something that's designed so it's easier to use, something that improves their performance and is always easy and fun. The new generation of old people are going to actually be the lifestyle leaders of how everyone else lives tomorrow. You, in your contribution to a book, you made the point that the boomers retiring now also have a very high share of women who have experience in the labor force, that that is a first. This is a, this is a, a new cohort. Uh, what kinds of changes do you think that's going to bring about? Well, not only is the face of tomorrow's lifestyle leaders and, and frankly, the catalyst to business going to be the older population because of its size and wealth and demand, but that face is going to be an older female face. She's the chief consumer officer of the house. In the United States alone, 70% of them work at least part-time. They make 80 cents and 90 cents on the dollar of every decision in things like health care or 65 cents on the dollar for automobiles. So as a result, she's more educated, she has more expectations, and she's the one who actually does the research for purchasing not just for her house, but probably informing her own kids, but certainly informing her parents and her partner's parents if, if they're, they're in need of help as well. So as she ages forward, I think that the, the new face of a bright new old age is going to be an older female face. Okay. I want to do like a kind of lightning round now. Okay. Uh, I want to go through a few different specific types of technologies right. and then just get your kind of quick take on how meaningful they're going to be and what kind of an impact specifically they're going to have okay. uh, on how pleasant uh, life in old age is. Okay. Sounds good. Driverless cars. Driverless cars, they are coming, but the mixed metaphor intended, they're down the road. The cars are technologies ready, but the infrastructure and the drivers are not. Okay, but they're going to make a huge difference. They will make a huge difference, not just for old folks, but you'll no longer have to drive your kid to Cub Scouts. Okay. <laughs> uh, wearables. Wearable computers, computing, cool. It's going to monitor, manage, and motivate everything from your meds to how much you walk. The challenge we're going to have in the future is, are you willing to give up that much privacy, and will you pay attention to that much data? But watch out. Next are implantables. <laughs> uh, drones. Drones. Imagine this. Not just having delivery by drone, but dinner by drone. Do you know in the United States we have a shortage of people doing meals on wheels? So I can envision very soon that drones will be bringing that warm meal that's specked out to your diet to your house, especially in a society where 45% of women over 65 live by themselves. Similar infrastructure issues, I'd imagine, though, as to like driverless cars. Absolutely. We Do we want it yet. to deliver to your door or are we going to have a drone drop in your neighborhood? Right. I think Domino's is already thinking about doing something like Domino's this. Domino's right? by drone. <laughs> um... The, uh, the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things where everything is connected and talking not just uh, with you but about you. Right. No, absolutely different. It's going to enable the services, I believe, to create virtual assisted living and care 
in the home you choose to live in, which is the home you live in now. What's a good example of, of uh, Great example some of the convenience would, given by Internet of Things? Imagine your refrigerator taking stock of what's in your refrigerator, how old it is, and reporting, A, that you've been eating well, what have you been eating, and facilitating home deliver, delivery, perhaps by drone, of grocery foods that you need. Internet of Things may also be looking at the medication. Your smart medicine cabinet will enable home delivery of the medications that you need as well. Essentially, it's going to create all those things that will help replace the oldest adult daughter who may have moved far away, or given the fact that our fertility rates are so low, that doesn't exist at all. <laughs> uh, robotic caretakers. Robotic caretakers. You know, there's a fine line between high-tech and high-touch. It's never going to replace high-touch, but given the shortage of caregivers, given the shortage of children or children that have moved far away around the world, Japan, whatever it might be, robotic caretakers are probably here to be, stay that will help you in the home as an assistant, but be in long-term care settings to help the caregivers provide the best care they can. So high touch, you mean human touch. In other words, exactly. the difference between robotic I, touch and the human exactly. touch. Exactly. I hate to replace high touch, but we have such a serious worldwide shortage of high touch, that is human caregivers, that the robots are coming and they're here for you. Okay. Uh, community of the future. The community of the future is going to be probably far more urban. It'll be far more connected and transportation, accessible transportation and redesign of sidewalks and the like is going to be a lot more sensitive to an aging society. It's not going to be just age friendly. More importantly, it's going to be age ready. And that'll make it possible for a mom to push a baby carriage and for me to get up to the sidewalk when I need it, when I have a walker. Okay. That's the end of the lightning round. Uh, you mentioned Japan, obviously an older population yeah. uh, than the U.S. The demographic trends there don't look very good in yeah. terms of... Uh, you know, an actual shrinking population, exactly. shrinking labor force. Throughout Europe and Japan. Japan. Right. What, what are the lessons we can draw from Japan and how they're handling uh, their demographic situation? I think one of the things that we can learn from Japan where a population is actually shrinking by mid-century and dramatically aging is to prepare now that fertility rates, keeping them at a decent level, is good and vibrant for society. Immigration is important to keep your numbers up. But something else we can learn from Japan, being innovative, looking at new technologies such as robotics to prepare for a healthier, easier living society in old age. Um, there, was, uh, there was an article that was widely read by Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, I believe in The Atlantic, where he said that uh, he wouldn't mind dying at age 75, uh, yep. that by then he thinks that he will have had a full life, that his kids will be on their way to having their own full lives that he will have seen his grandkids um, you know, in their early stages, uh, and that, from what I can gather, the rationale is that old age just kind of sucks. Um, you use Jimmy Carter as a counterexample. I think right. both of these people aren't really representative of, of the average, uh, Joe, uh, so like the average yeah. person. So yeah. how should the average person think about um, the trade-off between their best years being behind them and the difficulties of old age? Well... Two things I would say. One, to Dr. Emanuel, I'd like to talk to him when he's 74 and see how he feels about <laughs> 75. Okay. Secondly, I think this points out the greatest contribution we need to do as a global society uh, around aging. Now that we are living longer, we have yet to envision how we will live, work, and play tomorrow. And the reason why Dr. Emanuel, with pretty good reasoning, was saying the best is behind me is that we have not envisioned anything going forward after, frankly, about 67 or 70. We have not envisioned new ways of working, new ways of playing, new ways of living. We will have the medical technology to live longer. We will muddle through those diseases. We now have to have the imagination, the creativity, and the will to invent a new vision to live longer and better. 
If it's simply what it is now, which is waiting around after you retire until I get so sick that I can't do anything, probably Dr. Emanuel's correct. What what are the obstacles to a wider societal imagining of a more pleasant and a more enjoyable old age? Our greatest barrier is not technical. It is not economic. It is psychological. We have defined aging since Roman times, and I'll blame the baby boomers, of which I am a part, at being always, always focused on the youth. Well, now we're about to reap the benefit or the damage that we have done. And as a result, rather than saying we want quality of life from zero to 100 or zero to wherever it ends, we've always focused on 18 to 35. As a result, our imagination stopped at roughly 60, 65 years old. So the real barrier is to start to imagine 30 years of life. It's a longevity dividend. How are you and society going to cash that in? What are your own personal views on working you know, until you drop versus taking some leisure uh, in retirement? Because I, I think there's a, a longstanding trend or a longstanding sequence of studies um, showing that if you have something to stick around for, you tend to stick around for it, yep. I think is the short way of defining it. You have to have it. a reason to get up in the morning. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, so what are your thoughts on that? Are those studies robust? Um, and you know, do you just have your own, your own opinion on that? that no, you share? I, I, I probably, I hope to work until I drop. That's my vision. In fact, 40% of American baby boomers, according to the AARP, report they plan to work until they drop in part for money but also in part for purpose and social connections. By necessity, you mean, when you say money, right? Yeah, exactly, by necessity. But there's there's two things I'm concerned about. One is when we say work, we want it to be productive, but we also want them to be engaged. So people need to be healthy and educated to stay in the workplace. But there are at least two classes of workers. There are those who, shall we say, get paid by running their mouth and driving a keyboard. And then, as I like to say, people actually work for a living. That is, they build buildings and roads and things like that. Their bodies give out. So we have to start thinking of how can we use robotics, new job opportunities and the like to give them the opportunity to keep working. An iron worker at 55 is much older than a professor at 75. Okay. There's a Volkswagen simulation machine uh, yep. right next door to where we are. Miss Daisy. Yeah. What, what does it do? And uh, can you just give us a few examples of the kinds of technological approaches that you're sure. using? Sure. We got uh, we were referring to as Miss Daisy, as in driving Miss Daisy digitally. She is a tricked out VW bug, where we're looking at how are new technologies that are soon to be in the autonomous vehicle going to make it possible for drivers of all ages to drive longer, safely, but particularly in old age. Down the hall, there's Agnes, the age gain now empathy system, which gives you the joys as well as the friction of feeling roughly 78 to 80 with one or two chronic conditions. But how does it do that? Well, you put the suit on and it's got belts and straps and glasses and the like to reduce your vision, reduce the torque of your neck give you arthritic hands, maybe make you a little unbalanced when you walk. And we've used that to reinvent different stores of the future, getting in and out of cars, packaging, and the like. We also have Paro, the robotic seal. And it's a, a, a social and therapeutic robot that for particularly Alzheimer's pa- uh, patients that uh, tend to get very irritated in the end of the day, sundowning, this little robotic seal responds to them uh, by sound and visually and calms them right down. So old age is not what it used to be. It's not your grandparents' old age. It's actually going to be about living longer, better with technology, expectation, and a few tweaks to society's views. Okay. My, my colleague, Simon Cooper, recently wrote yeah. a, a brief but deeply humane column, I thought, um, where he talked about how uh, aging employees should be really nice to their younger colleagues because 
tomorrow, those younger colleges are going to be the people in charge and the older employees are essentially going to be like yesterday's reject, right? And and he made the point, um, the very sad, but I think true point that the discarded uh, male 50-something jobless, uh, you know, worker or out-of-work person um, has become an almost like a kind of icon of our age, right? Right. In the sad sense. Yeah. And that that kind of that kind of situation like involves a loss of self esteem. Right. Um, it's very difficult. It's not good uh, for family. It's, it's not good for anything. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of like it's at that sweet spot where well, sweet spot's the wrong word, but it's at that point where uh, you're considered too old to retrain for something new, but you're too young to retire, and it's very difficult. Right. Um, I guess my question is, how would you advise somebody like that? I think that we need to start early. I mean, frankly, uh, I think many of us know in academia that the education you receive from zero to 21, or if you stick around in grad school until your 20s, um, ages very quickly. The speed of knowledge and technology moves so quickly that we're now going to have to start to have a lifetime of learning. For instance, you know, massively online uh, courses that are, people are taking. The average age now of taking those courses is about almost 40 years old, 39, 40 years old. So for those that are in their 40s and approaching their 50s and hopefully are maybe still employed now, they're going to have to actually work harder to stay educated, to maintain their skill set, to be able to be adaptable to doing something else, to maintaining their health, not just because it's feeling good and cheaper, but to maintain their health so that they can work. There's going to be a new expectation that if you want to live longer, better, that you're going to have to take care of yourself, not just because it's a good thing to do, but it's an investment in yourself. Sure. So I, I guess to, to me, that sounds like that is always good advice, right? Yep. But that it should also be paired with um, some kind of political or societal reconciliation where we say, well, listen, we also need policies to make that kind of transition easier because some people are going to be able to do it and some people won't. And the variables that determine who can, who can't uh, often are just going to have to do with who's made more money by that stage right. of their yep. life. Um, yep. What do you think about the political sphere and what kinds of policies we should be pursuing to prepare people uh, for later when possibly their skills might grow obsolete um, or even, you know, a decade or two after that when they're facing retirement and they're not in the situation that they want to be in. I, I think one of the, you know, in terms of spending money as a matter of public policy, we really need to rethink the education system so that education is possible for a lifetime so that we can reset the expectations of individuals so that they have to stay educated and on top of their game, the idea that you think you're done after a certain number of years of high school or vocational school or college is is kind of crazy. So we have to have government set the agenda to provide the resources to create these new institutions and new expectations. I think they also have to give business guidance that, you know, age discrimination is real. I think we also have to have that in addition to being a mentor to a millennial, that older adults have a responsibility as well. Find a millennial to be your mentor. How do you work with right. a younger generation? How do you understand the technology if you don't already? How do you understand how you're communicating to maybe your subordinates today may be a problem tomorrow? So this is not just about what do we need to adjust for the aging population. This is about how the aging population needs to adjust to the dividend that they've collected of living longer with the hopes of living better. I can tell you I'm looking forward to the day when our producer Amy Keene hires us all. Okay, because I'm quite confident she's going to be running at least. Remember, half the they're world not by just then. your employees; they're tomorrow's boss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, fundamentally, though, uh, you're optimistic that um, we're going to be able to handle um, an aging demographic trend in the, in the developed world, at least. Let's put it this way: we are doing, we are achieving something that humans have wanted since they've crawled out of the ooze. 
living longer. It is only recently that people have decided that old age is somehow now a problem. It is here. It is real. It is now up to us to translate it into new products, new policies, new opportunities, and new visions of life. I just gave you, metaphorically, 30 years of longer life. Now is the chance to seize that and say, what do you want to do with it? I think it's not only going to be good, but it's got the potential, if we seize it today, to be great. Joe Coughlin, head of the MIT AIDS Lab. Thanks for talking to Thank Alpha you Chat. for being here. Okay, back in the studio here with Shannon. Uh, what did you think? Well, I'm planning to live forever, so I'm relieved <laughs> to know that there are going to be ways to make that more comfortable. But, you know, I mean, I think this is clearly, you know, it's really interesting to think about the fact that, you know, whether it's, you know, kind of in everyday life or, you know, in the office, clearly these are things we're going to have more older people working for longer. Um, and it it can, we can now take technology, right, and actually make that possible, make that like enjoyable. And I mean, I think about my grandfather, who was a mathematician, um, who, you know, worked for the government for a long time. And, you know, as he got older, you know, he couldn't drive anymore and he was kind of stuck at home and he couldn't hear that well. And he would watch yeah. the, the Sunday cable news shows at like top volume because that's all he could hear. But, you know, his mind was still there. He did the crossword puzzle every day. He spent, you know, the last years of his life writing regular letters to the editor of the New York Times. You know, if there had been ways for him to get around more, you know, he could have really participated still for a long time in a way that he wasn't able to. Sure. I mean, it's also just a crucial economic question. I think it has to be discussed in the context of wider inequality issues, right? Um, you mean like class inequality? and uh, Just straightforward. Who has money? Yeah. You know, uh, you get to the end of your life. Some people will have saved more money than others. Some will have simply made a lot more money than others. And we others. won't have a social safety you know, net the way that the previous – the same kind of social safety net, at least in the U.S., that previous generations have had. And I, guess, and I guess my thinking on this is that the same kinds of societal issues that we're thinking about now – uh, in terms of people who do work already and you know, income inequality, wealth inequality, those things don't simply go away because we come up with better technology, right? right? Because if you think about it, this technology is going to cost some money, right. right? So you don't want it to be a situation where the only people who have access to the you know, technology that makes their lives easier in old age are rich people. Right, you want that to be as accessible as possible. All right, and Maybe. frankly, probably it's poorer people who are going to have to work longer anyway. Right? I mean, yeah. you can't you don't have the luxury of retiring. Right. So, I mean, I, I, that's not to denigrate the technology itself. It's a wonderful thing. I'm so glad that there are people working on it. But I guess it, it doesn't solve the same kinds of political economy problems that we're dealing with right now. And it's important to note that. And in the follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasek is here to critique last week's episode. Shannon, of course, hanging around. Amelia, first of all, what do you think? Shannon, full-time co-host, it's about time, right? What's she going to say no now? <laughs> World domination, as I say. Yes, you know, yeah. I think Shannon so, Shannon, the next editor, all that. Yeah. Yeah, your boss. Yes, yeah. indeed. If I hadn't already uh, cast my write-in vote for Amy Keene as president of the United <laughs> States, it would have gone to Shannon. Okay. Um, Amy's there's more Canadian. than enough. That's true. There's yeah, more than enough. So I'll be president. president of the U.S. and Amy can be prime minister, prime minister of Canada, of Canada yes. instead of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> there are more uh, than enough world domination jobs to go around for these indeed. amazing women. Um, I thought week. you were great last week, Cardiff. I have nothing bad to <laughs> say. No, is I this thought, allowed? This is, a, this, is, this is new territory here. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable. Did you pay her off? Seriously, I thought your, your Angus Deaton interview was fantastic, and I thought your enthusiasm for economics and his 
fantastic brain about these things just came together in a way that was very interesting and entertaining. And the thing that I mainly criticize uh, economic wonkery discussion for, which was not relating to real world, just so didn't apply right. in his case. And he's unique even amongst, uh, without naming them, Nobel Prize winning economists <laughs> in being able to... Some of whom might have also appeared on the podcast at some point. Who are, you know, able to sometimes communicate real world uh concepts but he's especially good at it yeah his his career is unique in that sense um and we talked a little bit about it in the interview the idea that he has sort of fluctuated between theory and empirical work and i think that gives him kind of a unique insight in the ways in which economics can be applied or in some cases should be discarded to stuff that happens in the real world that was maybe my favorite part of my chat with him and i also thought david crow explaining what is actually quite a complicated industry, pharma, at yes. the moment. You know, I can't get my mind around it most days. There is so much going on, so much regulation, accounting issues that are quite complex. And I thought his explanations and elucidation of, of what it all means was fantastic as right. well. So I have, I have no bad things to say. Okay, great. Uh, that's good. <laughs> People um, should go back and I, listen I to would, it again. I would repeat myself from earlier. I actually think David Crow's having just a kick-ass year or two. Like, there's a lot of fantastic and interesting stories a lot of things happening in pharma in particular that uh, sort of would blow your mind, right? Amelia Mahasek, always a pleasure. Thank you, Cardiff. And that's all the time we have for today's show. But last week, Amelia had a great idea that we offer book recommendations each week. And a listener wrote in named James Trelevin. Thanks for getting in touch with us. And he suggested that we ask everybody who appears on each week's show to give us a recommendation. So we are going to play all of those recommendations before we go. I just read, finally, Janet Malcolm's uh, The Journalist and the Murderer, which is a uh, 1992 published, I think, um, series of essays from The New Yorker detailing the relationship between source and reporter. And it was, you know, it's kind of the required reading for journalists, but it was really awesome and fascinating. So if you're not a journalist and you want to better understand that relationship, I recommend it. That's required reading for journalists. I'd love to take a survey of everyone at the FT to see how many people have actually read it. Um, Stephen. And I'm, uh, I've, I've just started and I'm, I'm, I'm packing the, uh, for my vacation, I'm packing Chigozi uh, uh, Obioma's uh, book, The Fisherman which uh, just won the FT's Emerging Voices uh, Literary uh, Prize. It's about uh, uh, four brothers in, uh, in Nigeria, this, uh, this mythic construct that uh, they, uh, they get a prophecy that uh, one of the three younger brothers is going to kill the older, and things spiral. Sounds great. My recommendation is a book called Robot Futures. The author is Elon Nurbash. Okay, he's at Carnegie Mellon. We interviewed him uh, a couple of years ago in an earlier incarnation of this podcast, and it's essentially a step-by-step -step introduction to all the ways that robotics are going to take over the world, essentially, right? Uh, I'm being totally facetious, but all the different ways that they might improve our lives or, in some cases, harm us or threaten to harm us and why it's important to pay attention to those things, too, so that we can protect ourselves against it. But it's really fascinating. He takes us through sort of different stages of development, so the next 10 years, the next 30 years, the next, you know, way off into the distant future, and he, he acknowledges that obviously this might turn out totally differently. But it's a really great book. It's an intro book. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, how about you? So I don't have a book this week, but I, there's a column that I read last weekend which stuck in my mind, which is Eva Wiseman um, in The Observer on the weekend. And she raised the question of earnings transparency. Why don't we talk about how much we all earn? And maybe that would close the gender inequality gap. But she, she wrote it in a very entertaining way. 
uh, about overhearing a man and a woman discussing their pay. And uh, she also brought up Jennifer Lawrence's pay gap. So uh, the it was revealed. The famous actress that she gets paid less than, than men of comparable skill in Hollywood. Exactly right. And uh, so one of her male co-stars, Bradley Cooper, has said he will from now on be transparent about his uh, earnings and in the hope that women in Hollywood will have it matched. So anyway, it was a you know interesting piece. I know there's a lot of um, more economically literate discussions out there, but no, but it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating idea of whether or not that kind of transparency should be enforced, or whether or not we should encourage people to voluntarily say what the, what it is they're making. That's a tougher question to ask, but I agree that more transparency probably would help bridge the gender gap there. Uh, Shannon, what do you got? So um, I my recommendation. I'm going to give a little bit of background. Um, so as we mentioned during our discussion about TV and Bill Simmons going to HBO, um, you mentioned Grantland, which was the website uh, dedicated to sports and pop culture that Simmons had started for ESPN. Um, he had left uh, earlier this year, last year. He was basically fired. Uh, right. And the site had sort of gone along, and then ESPN pulled the plug last week, which was sad for fans of you know really interesting long-form writing on all kinds of cultural topics as well as sports. I mean, also really sad for podcast fans because they had a yeah. great stable of podcasts. Um, and so I can only hope that many of those podcasters will go on to other exciting homes. But sort of thinking a lot, I've been thinking and reading a lot about Grantland in the past week and wanted to recommend a particular episode of a particular Grantland podcast that I just think really just gives you a flavor of like what they did really well. Um, so one of their writers, Andy Greenwald, writes about TV um, and entertainment. Uh, and he has a show called The Andy Greenwald Show. Um, and a couple weeks back, he uh, did a long interview with Andre Holland, who is one of the stars of the show The Nick. I don't know if it, either of you guys watch it. It's on Cinemax. It's about doctors uh, in late 19th century New York, early 20th century. And it's just an absolutely fascinating discussion of like the craft of acting, of what it's like to, to do a TV show, to work with a director. Like a behind the scenes, behind the, scenes. the process. Yeah, the process. But really, I mean, you know, you hear actors interviewed all the time. I mean, we're all familiar with this. This is like a wholly another level. I mean, it really speaks to Andy's just a fantastic interviewer. He's just one of those people who can get somebody to talk about their job and like what's really fascinating about their job, but in a way that actually is interesting for other people who don't have that job and who might not understand it. And just like absolutely fascinating like look inside, even if you don't watch the show. So uh, Andy Greenwald interviewing Andre Holland. Shannon. Cardiff. Okay. You're leaving. <laughs> I'm out of here, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to tell our, all our listeners for at least the next month or so to bother you, to harass you. That's right. Contact me. So please send us your own recommendations for a book to read or a long-form article or a podcast you thought was really great. Uh, send us an audio file and we will share it. You can call us and leave us a message about how much you loved or hated anything we've done. 917 551 5012. Email us, record a voice memo, and send it to alphachat at ft.com or tweet us at Cardiff Garcia, but maybe not for the next month, or at me, Shannon Pry, S H A N N O N P A R E I L. And I'd like to note, first of it. all, as I inter interrupt here, that Shannon just nailed that in one take, and I did three failed takes before I just decided to let her do it. That's okay. why you have to go on vacation. Cardiff. A natural, I am. <laughs> I'm out here. Right. You have to come up with a new compliment each week for how amazing Amy Keene is. And honestly, we're running out of superlatives at this point. All right. Well, I'll get working on it. Yes. Send us recommendations for those, too. Yeah. In the meantime, Amy Keene edits, 
produces this podcast. Thanks, everybody. I'm out of here, but come back next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Bye. I'm really excited. I'm actually genuinely excited about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be great. We're going to have a good time together. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24.